Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 608, where we finally broke down the crime scene within the closet in the area immediately outside of the closet. This is where all of the blood is. This is where Jim's body was found. And I think that this episode not only answered a lot of questions, but it also created a lot of new questions. I've also got some things that I want to address with you all before we get going. So let's go ahead and get started. Okay, before we get started in the questions, Bob, we've got some housekeeping. So what do you have for us? Yeah, so just about every season, we get a little ways into it, and we have to have this talk. We're only going to do it once, and this is going to be it. But what happens is we get a lot of new people every season. They join the fan pages. They join the, all the different discussion groups, whether it's on Twitter and Facebook and everything. And a lot of people don't know exactly how we do this. They're unfamiliar with the process. And what ends up happening is if you go to the fan page right now, you'll see there's a lot of, I would just call it drama back and forth, where people are starting to dig into their positions and their theories and their hypothesis, which is all fine. But the way people are communicating back and forth is not always productive. So I want to put this out there. And as I have in previous seasons, uh, I've spoken to the admins on the page and, and the tolerance that they are going to put up with this kind of business is... Uh, going to go away, meaning they'll start removing people from the group uh, if these things continue. So I want to make one thing very, very, very clear. The reason we do the show the way that we do and have these discussion groups and, and how this crowdsourcing works is to have all different perspectives and ideas. So in no way, shape, or form are we expecting anyone to you know, follow the company line or be an echo chamber or yes men and women that's not what we're looking for. We look forward to having all sorts of different viewpoints because that's the only way that we can move the ball forward in, in this case or any case. If you go all the way back to episode number two of the original Serial Dynasty, you know that was 250-some episodes ago, we talked about the investigative process that I use and that we use together as a group, and that is to evaluate evidence, form a hypothesis, and then take the hypothesis and compare it back to the evidence and keep digging and see if there's any holes. So having people throw out other theories or having other opinions is what makes that process work because 
you may see something in the crime scene that I don't see, or you may see it a different way. And that gives us another hypothesis to compare the evidence to, to see if that's the direction that we should be going. That being said, we can do that. And this is the kindergarten talk that we have once a season. You can do that without being rude or disrespectful. And that stuff's just not going to be allowed on the fan page. And there's a number of reasons for it. We're all grown-ups here, and yeah, we can handle if someone is calling us names or being rude to us. But what it does is it, number one, it detracts from the work that we're trying to do. And number two, it also, when new people are coming in, imagine if you're a new person, you're like, you know what, I want to engage in this, and I want to be part of this investigation. So they go into the fan page, because we tell people, go to the fan page, that's where the discussion's happening. And the first five posts they see are either people arguing with each other, name-calling, or then what happens is there's a bunch of posts telling people how to post and how to comment that we should, which, you know, I appreciate that effort, but it just, what it does is it clogs up the page. What should be there are posts where people are talking about crime scene photos and different theories and things like that, but instead they just see a bunch of drama and oftentimes they'll just leave or they're not going to engage. So in order for us to get our work done and keep moving forward, I want to hear everyone's opinions. I want to hear everyone's thoughts, their theories from the innocent camp to the guilty camp. That's how this process works. That's what moves the ball forward. But you need to do so in a respectful way. And there's nobody in particular I'm referring to here, just in general. And just know that if you are speaking to people in a rude or aggressive manner on the page, likely you'll find that you have been removed. Because you know the, the other thing is the admins aren't going to continually post telling people to be respectful, be respectful, be respectful, because again, that creates a lot of drama. And that again, detracts from our message and our goal and purpose. And also it is a deterrent for any new people that want to come in and engage in the conversation. So be aware of that. State your opinion, state your facts, do so without disrespecting other people. Now, other housekeeping issues that I want to talk about. Uh, one, you know, as Liz isn't on today, that's not because we've decided not to have Liz on the follow-ups. It's just because Mike and I, as I mentioned last week, or at least on social media, we had been making a, I guess I wouldn't say emergency trip, but certainly an unplanned, very important trip to Mississippi this week. So where we had a, a different episode planned for Sunday and our whole week plotted out, you know, late in the week, last week, we find out we had to drive down to Mississippi to do some work for one of our cases uh, and drive back that ate up three days of our week. So now it's, you know, midday Thursday and we're trying to to play catch up here. So it. Having Liz on the show uh, just adds a little bit to the editing process, and we just didn't have time to mess with that uh, this week. And also during this portion, I wanted to discuss her being on the show a little bit, because there was a lot of discussion on the fan page and things like that. People had opinions one way or the other. And one thing that kind of ties in with what I was just talking about, too, as far as every season we need to talk about this, we always get to a point where the, the bias word starts being thrown around. And so I want to address that, too, because, again, this is how our process works. As I've mentioned before, anytime we take a case, we do a pretty in-depth screening and pre-investigation into the case before we ever decide to take it. Now, is there going to come a time where we might choose a case, investigate it, and find out the person actually is guilty? Sure, that could happen. But when we take the case, we're reasonably sure that it looks like there is a high potential that this was a wrongful conviction. And then we start investigating, we start moving forward. And we try to present both sides. We always present the prosecution side first. In this case, we actually had the prosecutor come on and make her case. And then we start doing ours. So what happens is some people get convinced of guilt. And then we start moving forward and people are convinced of innocence. 
And then a lot of times the people who are convinced of guilt or are leaning that way uh, will, will say, well, you're being biased in the way you're presenting things. Go back and listen to what I'm saying. I'll give you my opinion when I have it. But as far as presenting the evidence, not only do I present everything that I see, we also put out every single document and photo that we're discussing. And so, so far, you guys have all of the crime scene photos on the website, truthandjusticepod.com, so that you can go and make up your own mind. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ever apologize because I have an opinion and it might disagree with you. I would love to hear you out and figure out if I'm incorrect or if maybe the, the, the truth lies somewhere in between. But nothing that I'm telling you comes from any place of bias. You, know, you have to remember, I don't have a stake in these cases as far as whether Sandy Melgar, for instance, is innocent or guilty. My stake is to provide the truth. My main focus is to provide justice for the victim. And, and then if there is a wrongful conviction, then absolutely we want to find justice for the individual that's wrongfully convicted. But you're hearing what I find to be the truth, what I'm seeing from the crime scene and things like that. And then so that rolls into the discussion about Liz being on the show. Uh, there were some people that said, you know, well, this could bias the investigation or and there were a lot of people who are just worried about Liz. This is a lot for her. So I just wanted to address that. Number one, it's a little different that Liz is the daughter of the convicted. But keep in mind, she's also the daughter of the victim. She's Jim Melgar's daughter. Her father was brutally murdered. Liz is engaged in this investigation in a way that we've never seen before with any of the other family members in previous cases. But I think part of that is due to the fact that she's stuck right in the middle of this as far as being the, the daughter of the victim and the daughter of the convicted. And she just she's a very, very intelligent and strong woman who is needs justice. She needs closure. Mostly, she needs closure to figure out who killed her father. Obviously, she doesn't believe it was her mother, but if that's where the chips fall, she has told me repeatedly that she's okay with that, but she wants the truth. She needs the truth, and when we talked about her coming on the show, you know, I, I have concerns for her because, of course, just like a lot of you, this is traumatic, and even in being engaged in the, the fan page and the discussions, you know, people are talking about her father's murder and her mother, and of course, I worry about how that's going to affect her, but the end of the day, none of us can control what other people are doing, and none of us can tell anyone else how to react or how to work through something like this. Liz, and this is how I would put it in plain speak, she's a grown-ass woman. She knows the risks of what she's doing. She knows how it affects her, and she has made a decision to be a part of this. And I think it's more therapeutic for her than a lot of people might think because she has all these unanswered questions. So she has made the decision that she wants to be engaged and involved. I think she's a useful resource. And then the last thing that I want to point out is in every other season, whether it's Jesse Eldridge or Ed Eights or it was Carrie Cook, whoever it was, all of these people have been on the show. The actual people that were convicted. Liz is a daughter of the victim and a daughter of the convicted. Normally, the person we have regularly on the show is the actual person who was convicted. So if there's ever somebody who's biased into an investigation, it would have been Ed Eights and Jesse Eldridge, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, Kenny Snow, all these different people who have been convicted. And that's just part of our process. It's the inside information. Understand we don't take anything for gospel. You know, we hear people out and then we compare it back to the evidence. So Liz being on the show is no different than any of those other people. It would be no different than having Sandy Melgar on the show. But the issue with this season is 
We just can't get a crisp, clean phone call where we can actually hear Sandy. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why Liz is on to be able to answer questions just about, of course, she wasn't there at the crime scene. So that's not what she's there for. But she also has been investigating this case since it happened on her own as well. So she's a little bit ahead of us in a lot of ways. And she can certainly answer things about where things were at in the house and how the Melgars lived their lives and things like that. So we will be, I'm not going to say every week, but oftentimes we will have Liz here on the follow-up. That's just a, a decision that we've made from a production standpoint. And again, she wants to be engaged in the investigation. I think she's a useful resource. And none of it is about bias or anything. It's all about seeking and finding the truth. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, listener Matt has two questions. First, when the police did their experiments to see if they could close the door and wedge the chair from the inside, was there any mention of them trying to get out of the closet by shaking or banging the door? No, there wasn't. And we do finally have that video. By the video, I mean the entire crime scene video. But oddly, there's no audio with the video at all. It's just silent uh, video. So I don't know if that was something wrong with the disc that we got or if it just there just was no sound. But we do see that process, and I'm going to get that video put up on YouTube. But before I do that, I need to do a couple of redactions for the parts where they're in the closet. And then I can put the entire crime scene video up for you. It's not entirely riveting. It's a bunch of short little clips with no sound as they walk through the house. It doesn't reveal nearly as much as I had hoped that it would. And on that same note, Matt writes, did Sandy ever mention trying to kick the door open? If it was done from the inside, I feel like it would be tough to get the chair wedge tight enough to not slip and fall on the tile floor. No, Sandy didn't make any mention of it. And if you listen to her interrogation tape, and we're going to hear the second half of that on Sunday, you'll hear that she didn't know that it was barricaded. You know, she never says, even even in the report that we read in this week's episode, I think it was in Martinez's report, she said that she was in the closet and her hands were tied. She didn't say anything about the door being barricaded. All of the indications are that she didn't know, or at least she's presented as though she didn't know the door was barricaded. She did mention in her first uh, police interrogation that was after she had been untied by uh, Herman and Maria and she talked to the police and then she was in the squad car talking to police and then was talking to police at the at the station during the interrogation. She mentions the chair being in the way, but she doesn't when she's asked, you know, well, how was the chair there? She, she doesn't know. She just apparently saw the chair had was not in the closet where it was supposed to be and that it was in the way of the door when Herman was opening it. but. No, she never says she tried to kick her way out. There's no mention from the police as far as how hard it would be to get out of the closet with the chair on the outside. As far as anything we have, Sandy just said she was tied up. She always says she was tied up. She never mentions the barricaded door. All right, this one's from Russell. Any theories on why the unsubs didn't take the gun that was close to Jim's body? 
The similar case you described earlier stated that they stole a gun. Well, I mean, the simple theory would be that they didn't know the gun was there. You know, if from what I see in the crime scene, I do believe that it looks to me as though Jim was trying to get to the gun. And, you know, we've had some some conflicting comments about that that I think we're going to get into in a little bit when we talk about one of the or the jury form that has kind of popped up on Facebook. But, you know, the gun was hidden. It wasn't visible. So unless Jim said, I'm going to get my gun, they wouldn't know that there was a gun back there. Uh, they, it was not visible at all. It's completely covered by clothing. So that's one possibility. The other possibility might be even if, you know, Jim had said he was going for his gun and they did know it was there. If if we're looking at intruders, in my opinion, this very much looks like the murder wasn't intentional. I think that they were, if that was the case, they were intending to tie the Melgars up and then rob their house. And so, again, once a murder occurs when it wasn't planned, you know, if if Jim started fighting and through that fight, that the individual that was holding him or was tying him up felt threatened enough that they had to start stabbing him and they killed him. All bets are off at that point. You know, if, if the intention was to steal a gun at that point, I think they just want to get cleaned up and get out of there as quickly as possible. And Kimberly says, have you received court transcripts yet? Or are you also waiting on them to be corrected? Like Liz mentioned, if waiting any idea how long that might be. We are still waiting. I was told it should be within the next couple of weeks. And actually, that was last week. So hopefully any time I have spoken with uh, Brian Rose at the DA's office, who has told me as soon as they have them, he'll get them right over to me because the, the trial transcripts aren't anything that needs to be redacted. So that's what's slowing up the process for the rest of the files that we're waiting is every, you know, for example, we have the the audio, the recorded interviews from Herman and Maria for the, when they gave their statement then on the crime scene, along with Marissa, I think Monica, Gerson, all those people, because we want to compare those to the transcripts that we have. And also, you know, we want you to be able to, for those of you that aren't always going onto the website and reading through transcripts, to be able to hear them here on the show. But if in those audio recordings, they say their birthday, or they say their address, or anything like that, all that has to be redacted out, which means it's a process within the DA's office for a technical team to go in and either just remove it or put beeps under that or over that or whatever it's going to be. But as far as the the trial transcripts, we were told we could get those immediately as soon as they're ready. It should be any time. I think there was the last revision had it just about fixed. And so hopefully any time now. And I'm looking forward to that because then we can really get into what happened at trial. But keep in mind, as we mentioned at the start of the show, our process. We normally aren't in the transcripts yet at this point anyway, uh, because what happens at trial is the the versions of events as presented by the prosecution and defense. So both of their jobs are to only give you the information that helps their case and then to attack that. And then also you're dealing with rules of evidence, what the judge allows and doesn't allow, you know, for any trial in the months leading up to the trial. There's going to be motion after motion after motion to suppress evidence, and sometimes the judge rules on it and says that they will suppress it, meaning it can't come into trial. Sometimes they won't, and then, like I said, a lot of times they're just things that aren't admissible. So my point being, when we're looking at the trial transcripts, we're looking to see what happened at trial. But the process we're going through right now is the more important version. You know that that might give us an answer as to why a jury chose to convict. But the jury doesn't get to see all the evidence. So we're looking at the source documents, the evidence, not with, you know, that that adversarial system, you know, did the prosecutor or the defense make a better case to the jury? We're trying to see what does the evidence actually say in its entirety, which is what we're doing right now. Okay, Coco says, what do you take from the blood on the things on the closet floor? 
Do you think it's possible that somebody ransacked the closet before the attack or the stuff was thrown around while it happened? She says, I don't see any scenario where staging explains this. Uh, yeah, so I was looking at that and I'm I'm sliding through the photos right now. Yeah, I, I don't see anything here that looks like it was staged. I mean, there's things on the floor and they're bloody. They're kind of strewn about. There was clearly, you know, whether it was Sandy or an intruder, there was very clearly a struggle that happened there. Things that are on the floor are covered in blood. One thing that I've noticed is there's, there seems to be some kind of a throw pillow in there next to Jim's body. And there's another one between the door and the nightstand that looks to be similar, unless that's something that got moved. You know, some of the things got moved during the process of taking the photos. But, you know, it's a lot of clothes and there's blood on the clothes where there should be blood on the clothes. So, you know, it's not like it were tucked down there later. So from my perspective, all those things, uh, one way or another, were on the floor during the struggle, which is evident by the blood spatter that's on them and the blood that's on them. And it certainly wasn't staged. So whether that was, you know, Sandy or an intruder, I don't see any evidence of staging the items that are bloody on the floor in that scene. Okay, Robin says, can you talk more about why you think the chair was upright, then on its back, then upright again? I'm curious how the blue stripe blanket would seemingly stay neatly in place during all of this. Was it pinned to the chair? If not, I don't see how the chair was ever on its back and then back up again. That's a really good question. The reason we do this process just step by step, piece by piece, photo by photo, is so we don't miss details. Um, that's why when people, a lot of people are asking me about the ME's report. I don't have the answer for that yet because I've read the ME's report, but I haven't studied it in detail like we were going to do this week, but now we're going to be doing that next week. So going to the chair, I'm zooming in and looking at every single blood drop on the chair. And that's when I noticed you have perfectly round blood drops that have enough material congealed in them that should have ran downward with gravity if the chair was upright. In my opinion, there's no question that that chair was on its back at this point. And there's a, there's a few reasons, obviously the reasons I mentioned in the show, but then to add a couple more, we also have, if you look closely, and, and I was looking for them, but I was looking in the wrong place, Liz actually found them and pointed them out to me in photos. If you go back and look at the crime scene photos of the stool and the chair, don't look up where the chair is, look where the stool is, at the carpet below the stool, and you'll see the carpet marks. As you guys know, with plush carpet like that, if if a furniture item sits in the place, same place for a long time, it'll leave permanent dents in the carpet. And you can see exactly where that chair was positioned. And where it was normally positioned was right about where the stool is. It was closer to the bed, further back from the nightstand, right there is where... So we know it was moved from its normal position. Now, the question being, you know, if we, we try to compare that to what Colleen Barnett theorized as far as Sandy giving uh, Jim a massage and sitting him in the chair... Look where the chair's at now. The The chair is sitting, first of all, the closet door is open, covering the nightstand where the candle is. You know, it, later it's moved, but before anything's disturbed. So if this was a massage scenario, they light a candle, put it on the nightstand, and then open the closet door so it's covering the candle right in front of the nightstand, and then place the chair six inches or so, maybe eight, away from the door. So if someone was sitting in that chair, their knees would be, if Jim was sitting in that chair, his knees would have been touching the white door that's in front of him, the closet door. So in my opinion, that closer look is even more of an indicator that there's no way that chair was sitting there with Jim sitting on it for a massage. It just seems that the closet door, I think, would have been closed. The chair would have been back where it normally was. Certainly wouldn't have been shoved up so your knees were up against the dresser. So there's clear, undisputable evidence that that chair was moved from its normal position. 
Then we have the blood droplets, which are an indicator that blood dropped straight down onto it while the back was flat on the ground. And then when I was going through those things, then I noticed, well, there's a blanket, though. How is the blanket still on it? Well, if you look at the blanket, it's a it's a cotton or wool twill-type blanket. I mean, it's got a little texture to it, a little stickiness, and so is the seat of the chair, uh, which means it's not like a, on a piece of glass where it's going to slide around. And then you'll also notice that the blanket, folded up, goes around and, and goes down the front of the chair and angles down around the front of it a little bit. So if you can imagine that, so if the chair tips back, it's almost hooked around the front of the chair. It's not going to necessarily slide. It's definitely not going to slide off. If it was thrown hard down, it might bounce off, but it almost creates like a, those two materials together almost create like a Velcro, not obviously as tight as Velcro, but they're, they're kind of stuck together. Uh, and the fact that that, that blanket goes around the front again, perfectly explains why it wouldn't have slid down the back when the chair fell onto its back. Uh, But again, just go back and look at the photos of the blood droplets too. And you'll see also blood spatter, meaning something dripped or or splashed onto the chair right next to where they have the big transfer smudges. So someone couldn't have been sitting in that chair and the spatter hit the chair like that. The chair had to have been vacant from that position. So take the marks on the chair Take where the chair is positioned in correlation to the closet door open that's blocking the nightstand with the candles in it and the blood spatter and the the lack of corresponding blood spatter on the carpet and the uh, the, the bed around it. And yeah, I, I would still maintain, in my opinion, that chair absolutely at some point was on its back and the stool was not behind it during that time. This one's from Kimberly. Was the bra in the bathroom sink dry? Was it wet and soaking? Was it Sandy's bra? Luminol showed trace blood in the sink. What can you tell us about the bra? So I, I saw this question last week, and I didn't answer because I don't have the answer. I tried to again go back and look, and I don't see so far in the reports, unless I've completely missed it, I don't see anything where the bra is really mentioned, certainly not in detail. I don't see it on the evidence list where it was collected as evidence. All I have is the same thing you have, is the photo of it. It doesn't look wet to me. It looks like it maybe was just taken off and just tossed there, probably when they when they got into the tub. Maybe I assume it's Sandy's, but that's a guess on my part. I mean, that's what it looks like to me is that it was taken off and just set in the in the sink. It's not wet, but I I can't answer it definitively because I haven't at least at least I haven't found yet if there is anything that answers that question. Sheila says, "Were any credit cards taken from the wallets? If so, how about looking into any fraudulent charges?" As far as I know, nothing was taken from the wallet. As far as credit cards, you know, if there was cash there, it has been taken because they were empty, but we don't even know if there was cash. But you can see there are credit cards sitting on the bed. Uh, they weren't taken. So I don't know why someone would choose to take one card, not another. Uh, but as far as I know, I haven't heard anything about credit cards being taken or, or missing. All right. And Lauren says, I think the likelihood of the unsub having blood all over their shoes is pretty high. Could there have been a very small blood trail through the house as the unsub ran away? Not shoe prints, but small droplets of blood that might have been missed in the crime scene walkthrough. It's possible. As far as I know, they didn't do a luminol test throughout the house. There's nothing visible. I've tried to look really hard at the floor and you know, in the crime scene photos. I don't see any blood, but you know, luminol might have painted a better picture of that. But as far as I know, that wasn't done. And the prosecution made a very, very big point of pointing out that the only place there's blood is in the closet. You know, no, there's no blood anywhere throughout, else throughout the house, which, which I guess I want to talk about for a second, because it's one of those things that I find puzzling and how this is used as an indicator of guilt. And maybe I'm missing something, but 
I, I've heard the argument. Of course, Colleen Barnett made the argument, and and we know from trial and things we've seen on other you know Dateline NBC that you know there's only blood right there at the crime scene. There was no blood tracked anywhere, as this is why Sandy's guilty. But what we know is Jim is in that closet where all the blood is, and then we know that Sandy is found in the closet in a different room. Meaning, if it was Sandy that killed Jim, Sandy had to leave the area and walk to the bathroom or wherever she cleaned herself up and didn't leave a blood trail. Or if it was intruders that did this, they left the area to go wherever they went into the bathroom where they threw the the knife in the in the bathtub and the clothing, and they didn't leave a blood trail. So I don't I don't see how that's any indication of Sandy's guilt or why that's even part of the discussion as far as whether she's innocent or guilty. No matter who did it, somebody left that area without leaving a blood trail, whether it's Sandy or an intruder. I don't think it gives us much information one way or the other. Julie says, would you consider having Mr. Hook, the jury foreman, on the show if he's willing? Yes, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, I, I gave that invitation to him a couple of times. For those of you that aren't aware, if you go to the Truth and Justice podcast main Facebook page, not the fan page, but the public Facebook page, the jury foreman, or at least the man that says he was the jury foreman, Tommy Hook, on on the post about episode 608, came in and explained why he thinks Sandy Melgar is guilty. Uh, there's a pretty long comments on there and um, a lot of back and forth discussion. Uh, I was, you know, some people weren't as respectful to him as I would have liked to seen. I mean, this is, I, I know that a lot of people disagree with him, but in that thread, I asked Tommy a couple times to be willing to come on the show. He, you know, said he would think about it. He was busy. I know he, he was on, he interviewed for Dateline NBC. He explained in the thread that he was doing an interview for a reporter out of Houston just recently for uh, where he was videoed. Didn't seem to me that he had too much interest in being on the show, but the invitation is certainly out there for him or any of the jurors that want to be on the show. Uh, but that kind of goes back to a little bit of what I was mentioning earlier. You know, Tommy Hook, the man that was that was posting on Facebook as the the jury foreman, has a perspective of he sat through the whole trial and saw all the evidence. But I would contend that he sat through the whole trial but didn't see all the evidence. He only saw the evidence that was put into evidence at the trial, uh, and there is more to the story. And he made some points in there that, that why he thought Sandy was guilty. I don't necessarily agree with several of the points. Um, one being, uh, I guess I guess we'll just discuss it here a little bit, just because it was brought up by him, and it's something that he said compelled him to believe that Sandy was guilty, was the blood spatter. I had mentioned in the episode that there are, there's a light blue and a dark blue shirt, if you look at the crime scene photos, where it looks to me there's there's transfer blood from what I believe was Jim's hand reaching for his gun. The gun was right below those sleeves. And in his post, he said that the blood spatter analyst, uh, he used the word proved that that blood was from Jim falling backward and hitting his head on the closet shelf. I'm not a blood spatter expert, and that's one of the people we want to reach out to. I would like to hear from the actual blood spatter expert, and we know who she is, and we're going to reach out to her, and hopefully maybe we can get her to come on the show or at least talk to us and explain her findings uh, and we're trying to get a hold of her actual written report right now. But me, as an amateur looking at it, I just don't see that as in any way possible. I mean, I'm not saying that Jim hadn't fallen back and hit his head on the shelf and caused an injury there. But the blood that I'm talking about is probably six inches or more above where the shelf is. And there's no high-velocity spatter in between where right there at the bottom you know, where the shelf is, the very bottom of the cuffs of those shirts and where this stain is at on the sleeves of the shirt. And it is very, very clearly, in my opinion, transfer blood, not spatter. I mean, they're, they're large, 
blood stains on the cuffs of those shirts. So I I don't see how falling back, hitting your head causes blood to jump without leaving spatter in between and eight inches later land huge three inch by one inch globs of blood that aren't congealed. It's just stained on those sleeves. To me, it very much looks like a hand, a bloody hand reached up and grabbed those. But that's just one of the things, but I'd love to have uh, Mr. Hook on to discuss all of them and, and get a good idea from his perspective of why he and the other jurors convicted Sandy Melgar. So the invitation's out there. It's it's up to, to him if he wants to come on the show. Understandable if he doesn't, though. Yeah, I think for those of you that might be upset by the way he's approaching the conversations there, yeah, keep in mind that it is a daunting task to be on a jury, especially in a murder trial. There's a lot riding on that, and that's a decision you have to live with for the rest of your life. They, him and the other jurors, chose to convict Sandy Melgar and send her away to prison for 27 years. If they're wrong, they just not only send an innocent woman to prison for a quarter of a century, but they also sent the widow of a man that was brutally murdered away to prison for something that she didn't do. So that's if if they're wrong. And now here we are as a show that's dedicated to the case, and we're investigating it. And I, I haven't said this yet, but I'm, I'm getting there right now. I will tell you this to be 100% clear and honest. And this isn't bias. This is where I'm at with the investigation. I am finding it extremely hard to believe with what I've seen in the evidence so far that Sandy Milgar had anything to do with this. I, I, I'll say that my my hypothesis right now is that Sandy Melgar is innocent and, and was wrongfully convicted. This crime scene doesn't look anything to me like it was staged, and and there's more information that's going to be coming out on Sunday and then the subsequent weeks that might explain why my opinion is that far. But so with that being said, they convicted her, and here we are with a show with with hundreds of thousands of people looking into whether they got their decision right. And that's not anything easy. I mean, I respect I respect his position, like you said, Mike. It not being you'd understand why he wouldn't come on the show. This it's got to be tough to listen to when people are breaking it down and basically. Uh, the, until just this moment, I haven't said that they got it wrong because I wasn't sure. I'm still not sure, but I'm really leaning that way. But now to listen to to somebody say that, you know, I think there's a really good possibility you got that wrong. That's hard to live with. But I would love to have him be able to come in. And if if we're missing something, come explain it to us. We would love to see that because our ultimate goal is just to find the truth. Jennifer says, any thoughts of Jim maybe starting his fight back happening while he was still being tied up around his upper body? I think yes, he allowed his feet to be tied, but maybe he found his moment to fight back as the unsub was starting to loop the ties around his torso. Then Jim lunges for the closet for the gun. Yeah, I mean, that's, to me, that's a very, well, I won't even say a possible. To me, that's what the crime scene looks like, whether it was staged or, or that's reality. That's what it was made to look like. I mean, his ankles are bound and he's got the rope with the knot in it, the lasso rope looped around him but not tied. Yeah, it, it's made to look like they were attempting to tie him up and he made a break for it. And real close, and, and keep in mind, that lasso, like I said, isn't tied around him. It's looped around him. And keep in mind, if this isn't a stage scene, Sandy, what they do with Sandy? They took the chair out of the closet after what, you know, if they had a, you know attacked her and got her down, hit her over the head, whatever. They took the chair out of the closet and then tied her up in the closet. So now we have a stool that's normally kept in the closet found outside the closet. Okay, so so it's consistent with what's happened in the other closet with Jim being in there. Now add to that, 
Jim's in the closet with the rope wrapped around him, but not tied. So, because originally I thought maybe they were trying to tie him to the chair outside in the bedroom, the chair that was sitting outside. Part of that was because I didn't realize it was the lasso and it wasn't completely around him. But the more I think about it, I don't think that the loop would still, the rope would still be around him. You know, as soon as he stood up and made a break for the closet, it would fall to the floor. But it's still around him and it goes behind him in the front. So I think that it's, that it's likely that, yeah, they tied his ankles up in the closet and then that's when he made the fight. And it also explains why we don't have the blood spatter outside of the closet. But yeah, I, I think that during the process of them tying him up is the way the scene reads to me is when he made a break for the gun and started fighting. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Amy says, I see more blood on the stool that I assume Maurice missed since he didn't take a close-up of it. And on the stool, could those be fingerprints? And she had posted a picture with it too. Right. So Yeah, I saw this. So she's referencing... On the the back of the stool, it does does in fact look like there's fingerprints on it, but it also looks to me like maybe there's some fingerprint dust on the stool, and so we'll have to go to um, a couple of listeners have worked on, and I think they've made posts in that we, we I've been so out of pocket with social media for the last few days because we've been gone, uh, but I was catching that uh, I know John Hayes, maybe D one uh, is is one of the other listeners. There's a there's a few listeners that have worked on creating files and renaming the photo files by the time they were taken so that we could kind of map out when they were taken. So that that, that maybe it's hard to tell from the photo, bloody fingerprints, or it could be fingerprints that were brought out through the dusting process of the chair. Uh, but yeah, they, they definitely look like on the back of the stool, there's like three prints there. And I'm trying to bring them up here on my computer so I can compare one to the next. Okay, I pause it there for just a minute to look at the crime scene photos. And they do, they do not look like bloody prints to me. Uh, and Mike, you concurred looking at yeah, definitely looking at them when we compared them. The, the the blood on the stool is is pretty bright red, and the fingerprints look dark. I need to spend a little more time going through the the time stamped photos to figure out if um, because you know, I've got a thousand photos in this file right here. If I can see if there's other pictures where those prints aren't visible that would indicate that's from fingerprint dusting, but I I don't think so based on the sequence there. I think that's just greasy fingerprints or I don't know. We'll have to get back to you on that. Okay, and then she says, there's a lot of contention around the fact that Maria's statement to the police doesn't match her interview with Bob, namely whether she actually witnessed how Sandy's hands were tied up. I know Bob has addressed it briefly on a post in the Facebook group, but as a person who religiously follows the discussion, I know that some things can still be missed. Would Bob please address this issue on the podcast? Yeah, so in Maria's, if you go to the interview transcripts that we posted 
her transcripts from her police statement that she gave that night, uh, the night that Jim's body was found. If you go to our website, it's on, I don't remember whatever episode that was, but it's in the case documents. That transcript shows, it's got a transcript of what was said in Spanish and then a translation into English on the side of it. And from reading that, it doesn't sound like she cut the, uh, actually cut the bindings, that, that the wrist bindings were already off when she got there. But the reason that I haven't made too much of a deal about that, and I got to go back and read them again, is the other transcripts that we have that were created by the Harris County Police Department are terribly inaccurate. And I mean grossly and terribly inaccurate. And the one we have, and I'll be posting it on Sunday with with this episode coming Sunday where we're going to play the second half of Sandy's police interrogation. We have in the file the transcript that was created from the interrogation. And if you don't believe me, go read the transcript while you're listening and you'll be shocked at how inaccurate it is. I mean, and and not even just like little words wrong, completely incorrect in many places throughout that transcript. So because of that, I want to hear the actual audio tape from Maria and Herman's statements to see what they actually said, because I can't put any validity into the transcript because I've seen how badly the transcripts were done in with the police interrogation. And in this one, you're talking about a bilingual transcript. So there's even more margin for error there. I know that when I spoke with Maria, you know, even when we first got there and spoke with her before we went on mic and recorded, it's always been that she helped cut the the bindings. That Herman and Herman's story, as you heard, was consistent with that. That he started, he made a cut, she came in, he handed the scissors off to her, and she finished removing the bindings. Pamela says, I know scheduling can change, but can you give a brief outline for what you plan to release over the next few weeks? It might be good for the group to have a sense of direction. Thanks. Yeah, and we had a really good plan, and then things got thrown off with this trip. But So this Sunday, we're going to hear, we're going to talk a little bit about Sandy at the crime scene that night, uh, what we haven't really covered yet, and we're going to post the photos of her, uh, taken specifically of her hands and arms that night at the crime scene. And then we're going to play the second half of her interrogation. Then we'll go back to the following week, what we were intending to do this week, which is the full in-depth breakdown of Jim's ME report, the autopsy report. So we can take what we've seen at the crime scene and thoroughly look at each and every injury to get a better idea of what exactly happened to him. And then we can take that and compare it back to not only what we see at the crime scene, but also what we're going to be talking about, like I said earlier, and also what we're going to be talking about this Sunday being Sandy's injury. So we can look at what happened to him and see, does that correspond to Sandy? So, for example, and I'm not saying this is the case here, uh, but as I mentioned on on the episode last week, how things kind of are like puzzle pieces. You know, if Jim has broken nails with skin underneath them with a big claw mark, and number one, the DNA doesn't match Sandy, but Sandy doesn't have scratch marks anywhere on her, pretty good indicator that obviously that maybe she wasn't part of that. So we're going we're gonna to be making those correlations over the next couple of weeks. This week's on Sandy and her interrogation. Next week will be on the ME's report. From there, I think we're probably going to have, what, a couple of things are going to happen. We're working on schedules. We're going to be developing a profile on the scene. We need to get heavier into victimology, uh, which Liz will be able to help us with that. And then also we need to get into the forensics, what was collected and what was actually missing from the scene. So there'll be uh, police reports as far as the forensic reports, what was taken, what was tested. 
And then again, Liz can help explain what she believes was actually missing from the scene that night. And then maybe those things, again, we've got some scheduling issues, but then we'll get to a profile and after that. Okay, and then last, D says, will Jim Clemente be able to consult you in order to provide a profile or give his impression of this case? Yeah, so that's actually what I was talking about when I said scheduling issues. So I spoke with Jim last night, and he definitely wants to do a profile on the case for us. He's going to do that. But Criminal Mind is back in production right now. They're done with their you know summer sabbatical. So his schedule is super crazy right now. So he called me and we talked a little. He doesn't know anything about this case, so much so that he asked which case I was talking about. And I said, you know the one that you listened to the interrogation and you were texting me about it and he didn't remember which one that went with. So I just kind of stopped it there uh, because what we're going to end up doing is is kind of a, like he did a season three for us. It's going to be kind of a live profile. So you all are actually going to get to hear the process. Typically, when Jim does like a full profile, we'll send him the whole case file and the autopsy photos and the crime scene photos and let him work from that. Um, but he doesn't have the time right now to you know to spend a whole lot of time analyzing all that stuff to develop a full profile. So when when that happens, what we do is we get on the phone together. You know, we'll both have our computers so I can send stuff back and forth. He'll have some basic information about the case, but then I'll be describing it to him. He'll ask the questions that he'll need the answers to in order to develop the profile. And then he'll kind of develop the preliminary profile there on the air while we speak. Don't know when that's going to be. It's going to be something we'll have to move quick on. Basically, he said when, you know, when he's got a few hours in the next couple of weeks, he'll call me up and say, let's sit down and do it. And so we'll do it. But yes, Jim is going to give us a profile on this scene. All right. That's it for questions. All right. Then the last thing I want to do before we close out the show is there is a letter writing campaign that has been started by Liz and a few other listeners for Sandy. Now, focus in here for a minute because this isn't, it doesn't matter if you believe Sandy Melgar is innocent or if you believe she's guilty or if you're on the fence. This is a human rights issue that I hope a lot of you can get behind. Sandy has not had access to her medication since she's been in prison. She needs to be with her condition. She should be in a medical wing. They're not giving her medications. Uh, they're talking about not letting her keep her cane while she's there. She's had at least two grand mal seizures since she's been in the prison. So whether you think she's innocent or guilty, that's not the issue here. Anyone still deserves to have their basic fundamental human rights and proper medical care, whether they're in prison, guilty, innocent, or not. Everyone is still a human being and deserves that right. So Liz, like I said, along with some listeners, have created a letter-writing campaign to try to help push TDCJ into getting Sandy into a medical wing where she can get her medications and be properly taken care of. There is a post that we will flag and pin to the top of the discussion page. I will also post a link probably on the main page. But they've created a Facebook page called Free Sandy Melgar. And all of the information, there's formats for the letters, there's bullet points, there's the addresses of where to send it to. That's where you're going to want to go to find the information to send the letters out. So again, even if you think Sandy's guilty, go to the free Sandy Melgar page and look through that and send it. You don't have to actually want a free Sandy Melgar to get this information, but I would love it if you'd go through and try to help move the ball forward for Sandy just to get her the basic medical care that she needs while she's in prison. And with that, that is the end of this week's Friday follow-up. Make sure you tune in on Sunday, and we'll see you next week.
Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussin. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.